Hello, hello, everybody. This is Drew Verdive World, a podcast about giving inspiration through information. Today on the podcast, we have, by any other name, Miss Carol Baskins. How are you doing today, Carol? Hey, all you cool cats and kittens in Drew's world. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. That's going to be a little sting. <laughs> I'm going to use that. So how is, first and foremost, how is your Sunday doing today? It's a good day. I just got in from riding my bike into the sanctuary, and that's about a 45-minute pedal in for me where it's me time. I get to embrace nature and reconnect with all that is important. So talk to me a little bit about the sanctuary and how you got started. The sanctuary actually started in 1992, but it started further back than that because I started doing rehab and release with wild native-born bobcats when I was 17. And then by the time I was 30, I had built up my real estate business to the point where I could give back. And I always thought that my mission was going to be saving domestic cats and kittens from being killed in shelters due to overpopulation. And I thought this is going to be like a very expensive endeavor to spay and neuter all those cats so that there aren't unwanted litters. And so I was really surprised to end up at an exotic animal auction on November 4th of 1992 and discovered that somebody was bringing in a six-month-old bobcat that their wife didn't want as a pet anymore because she grew up to be a bobcat. And the guy next to me was bidding on her, and I leaned over and I said, when that cat grows up, she's going to tear your face off. And they're vicious. They're my favorite species, but they are just, they're not afraid of anything. They don't back down from anybody or anything. And so he said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just going to club her in the head in the parking lot and make a den decoration out of her. And I burst into tears and my husband started bidding on her. And we probably paid more for that bobcat than anybody's ever paid for a bobcat. But she was captive born. She was declawed and she couldn't be released because she came from a different state and was captive born and declawed. So, uh, you know, about six months into that, my husband recognized what a horrible pet she was because she would like lay on top of the refrigerator and wait for him to come <laughs> into the room and then leap down on his head and start ripping his hair out. We had a German shepherd that she chased all over the house. And my daughter was like 12 at the time and just terrified of this cat. And so my husband called around and this guy said, well, I'll sell you a companion for her, but you have to come here in person. So we packed up my daughter, a little friend of hers from school, into our van, and we drove up to La Center, Minnesota. And when we got there, it turned out to be a fur farm. I didn't even know people killed cats for their fur, but they do. And if you've ever seen white fur with, like, black spots on it, that's the belly fur. It's only on the belly of the cat, and they throw the rest of the cat away. And so when I discovered what it was, I burst into tears again, and my husband said, how much for every cat here? And we came home with 56 bobcats and lynx that day. Yeah, that was a game changer. You know, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> part of what you talk about are your failures and your mistakes. I think that might have been a mistake. <laughs> like, hey, let's get all these exotic cats um, in one sitting. <laughs> How did you even transport those, all those cats to your home? Well, that was 56 babies. So we were able to go into town. We bought every carrier, every uh, bucket, every toolbox that we could drill holes in. And we bought up all of the formula we could find in town. We bought goat's milk to make our own formula. And we drove very quickly to get all those cats back to the house and built cages and brought in all of our friends and family and all of our employees, our real estate employees. 
had them feeding these cats around the clock. And we made the provision to go back the following year and get all of the adults. So we had about a year to build all of the cages to get the adults out of there. And then the following year, we purchased 22 more. So there was 56 the first year in 93. In 94, we came back for the 28 adults, and there were some kittens there too. And then the next year, we went to a different fur farm and purchased 22. And by that time, we had figured out we needed to make an agreement with these people that they never breed cats again for their fur. And they agreed to do that because it came at a time when, you know, PETA was spray painting people wearing fur coats in Manhattan, and it became very (laughs) unpopular to wear cat fur. So we got all the cats out of the U.S. fur farms, and we were working on getting them out of the Canadian fur farms. And that was when I lost my husband in 97. But people started calling us after, I guess, probably about 95 and started saying, hey, would you take my lion? Would you take my tiger? And I thought, what are people doing with lions and tigers in the United States? And so at each one of these junctures, I was naive enough to think that I could fix it. You know, I could just buy those cats and I could put them in pet homes. Well, they all ended up coming back. I could... I could bring in those lions and tigers that people didn't want anymore, and I could change the laws so that people couldn't get their hands on lions and tigers. Well, I've been working on that since 1998, and we had part of that bill pass in 2003, but we're still trying to close the loopholes in that in that bill. So it's turned out to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And goodness knows I made a lot of stupid mistakes along the way, but I think we're closing in on it and that we can finally end the abuse inherent in breeding these cats for life in cages because they just do not belong in cages. So you said said something about pet homes. What exactly is that? So when we brought in 56 bobcats and lynx, a lot of our volunteers and uh, employees, well, not volunteers, we didn't have volunteers in, but a lot of our employees and family members came in and they were like, well, I really like this cat. Could I go ahead and take this cat home with me and try to raise it there instead of having it here with, you know, 56 other cats running around in my house? And so we did that. And then I thought, well, you know, that might be a way to get all of these cats the personalized attention that they need if people would take them on as pets then these cats would be taken care of. Because even though Winsong, the first bobcat that we got from that um, guy that was a taxidermist, Mm -hmm. even though she was a horrible pet, I could not imagine putting her out or killing her or getting rid of her. It's like once you make a commitment to a pet, that's a lifelong commitment. And so that's what I thought people would do with these bobcats and lynx. I was wrong. As soon as those cats became who they were, they couldn't get rid of them fast enough. And even though almost everybody who bought cats from us and we made them pay for the cats because we felt like when you get something for free, you don't value it. Yes. But we, we took the cats back when they didn't want them anymore. And yet some of the people didn't bring them back. And I thought, well, they must be keeping them. And I was at an auction because we would continue to go to these auctions. We were buying llamas. And I saw one of the cats that I recognized from being a kitten that had been in my house. And so here was a cat that I had put into a private owner's hands. And that person apparently was too embarrassed to come back to me. And so they just sold that animal at auction to somebody like the taxidermist, because that's who's in the audience. Yeah. And that's when I realized, okay, we can't be selling these animals because people aren't going to make a lifetime commitment to them. And so we stopped selling in like 90 seven. And um, we stopped breeding and selling in 97. And since then, I've realized that even people who like me maybe got involved to rescue an animal and try to provide for it. 
what they don't realize is how expensive and how difficult it is to take care of these exotic cats. They're the, except for primates, they're probably the hardest animals to care for. And they end up going under and losing everything that they had and everything that they put into trying to start a rescue or a sanctuary. And then the animals end up being dumped again. And it's just this vicious cycle for the animals. And so I, I initially tried in the 90s to educate people who had these animals on better ways to feed them, better ways to cage them, better ways to fundraise, to take care of them. And that just wasn't working. And so that's when I decided, all right, there's the only way we're going to fix this is to make it so that people can't get their hands on them in the first place. So at the original auction, when you got your the first um, bobcat, um, were you also trying to pur purchase llamas there too? Or what was the original reason for being at a animal auction? I, well, I'm a city kid. So first and foremost, I didn't even know they auctioned out animals. So that's a big game changer for me. So what were you doing at the auction at that first place? Um, and, and, and what was, because you said you, at another auction you was going to buy llamas, were you originally in llama buying as well or getting other animals? No, it was llamas. No. So back in 1981 is when I met Don Lewis. And in 1984, we started investing in real estate. And the the sweet spot for us was to buy a large tract of land that maybe had gone up for what they call a tax deed sale or for uh, foreclosure. Mm -hmm. And so we were buying distressed properties. And then what we could do was then turn around and sell it to people with no money down. And if they made 12 payments on time, then we would deed the property to them and we would hold the mortgage. So sometimes people have their credit ruined for, you know, things that really are outside of their control. A family member gets sick, you end up with a gazillion doctor bills, and then they have a bankruptcy and they can't get regular credit. So mm -hmm. we were providing that, that hard money lending. And whenever we would get a big piece of property, like the one that we're on here, this was 40 acres back then, it's 57 acres now because I've bought more land around it. But we discovered that if you put llamas, because we had goats, I don't know where the goats originally came from. They just, they may have come with one of our pieces of property, but goats are really good at getting out of anything you put them in because they can jump, they get up on your cars, they go over the fences. And somebody had told us about llamas and said, oh, they're a lot easier than goats. So we bought some llamas and we would turn them loose on a big track of land like this. Well, llamas are tall, so they clear like eye level all through the property. So you don't have to do all that tree work to fix the property up to sell it. And I kid you not, llamas are like, they are so easygoing that you could pretty much draw a line in the sand and say, this is your boundary, just stay here. <laughs> and so I didn't have to worry about them escaping and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So that's why we were buying llamas at that original auction and why we keep going back and buying llamas, because as we got more properties, we were moving them around. That is awesome. And non-serious question here. Have you ever seen llamas in pajamas? <laughs> They look like they're in their pajamas all the time. They're so cute. <laughs> llamas are awesome. Um, my daughter like adores llamas and unicorns. I don't know if they have any interaction with one another, but llamas and unicorns <laughs> at all times. Um, <laughs> so as far as you said that when you were 15, you got your first bobcat? 17. 17, when you got your first bobcat. Like, how did you get... Wait, are you in Florida? You're in Florida, correct? I am. Okay. But that was in West Virginia. West Virginia. So how did you get that bobcat? Well, it wasn't that I got a bobcat. So I left home at the age of 15. And part of that was my mother and I had been like best friends my whole life. And we mm -hmm. had never had a fight. 
And we had our first fight when I was 15. And she said, when I get home, I don't want to see your face. Well, I thought she meant like ever. So I packed up everything and left. But it came at a time, again, stupid mistakes I've made in my life. But I had really been campaigning with my father to try and get him to let me get a job because I'm thinking like, I've got to raise millions of dollars if I'm going to save all these cats and kittens out there because that had been my focus since I was like eight years old. And I had done all kinds of fundraising things around, you know, that kids can do. I had gone door to door selling Amway. Mm -hmm. I had set up popcorn stands and lemonade stands and I organized all of the kids in our trailer park and we went around and we washed people's trailers and we washed their cars and we cut their grass. And so I was trying to make money, but it was like, you know what, I need a full-time job. And my dad's like, go to school. You don't need a full-time job. So when my mother said that she didn't want to see my face, I thought, okay, well, I'll get out and I'll get a job, which is exactly what I did. But because I was 15, I couldn't get any legitimate jobs. So mm-hmm. I was working like bars and nightclubs because I looked a lot older than I was. But I couldn't show anybody my driver's license or I didn't even have a Social Security card. So I'd have to go from job to job to job and usually had three of them at a time. I'd work breakfast in one place, lunch in another place, and then some bar until 3 o'clock in the morning. And all the while thinking, you know, I've really got to make a lot of money to take care of this issue that I want to do. And so um, I also felt like if you're going to be saving cats and kittens, what I need to do is be involved in the veterinary community. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go to school because I was having to support myself, but I was getting involved in veterinary clinics. And if a bobcat gets hit by a car, the vet can fix them up and 30 minutes to an hour, Mm -hmm. but then you're talking months of rehab for those bones to heal and for the cat to get back in fighting Mm -hmm. shape. And so that was how my first cat, even though it wasn't like my pet, um, was a vet saying, hey, this cat came in, I fixed him up, but it needs rehab. Could you take the cat and then release it when she's ready to go? So that was the first one that I took in. And then I found that this happens a lot, that bobcats get hit by cars and vets don't have anywhere to turn. Because even rehabbers who do like squirrels and possums and turtles none of them want to deal with bobcats <laughs> because they are so bad oh my gosh the whole time that you are saving their life they are just hurling threats at you <laughs> what they're going to do to you as soon as they can stand on their own two feet or their own four feet so so another thing did, did you were you able to finish high school before no. you so you you never finished high school no, I went back oh, and wow. got my GED because okay. I went to work for the governor, but um, they required me to go do that if I was going to work in the governor's office. This yep. was Winsong. She was the hey, first Will. bobcat. She's so beautiful. She's still with you, with us? No, she died in 2011. R.I.P. Um, uh, yeah, so as far so wow, that's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. So as you're, so has, how did you, and did, I just skimmed the surface. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> did, did you and your mother kind of reconcile and down the pass? And did you, when you left, did, was your parents like, where the hell are you? Or is it that I would believe that was the time before a cell phone. So it's like you was gone. You was pretty much gone unless you, you know, called the phone, called the house phone or something like that. So did your, did you and your mom and family ever reconcile um, your differences? We did, and it wasn't for, it was for a long time later. So I left home when I was 15, and I got into, um, I took, well, the way that I left home was I was living in West Virginia at the time, but I had met a boy here in Tampa, Florida, 
And um, my mother used to take me to the this roller skating rink periodically where all the Christian kids would go and roller skate. Mm-hmm. And he worked at the roller rink. And this guy was six foot four and like 230 pounds and just solid wall of muscle. And he had hair longer than mine, which I've always loved. Men with long hair. Oh my gosh, I just love long hair. And this guy could dance and skate like nothing I had ever seen. It was it was a sin in my family to dance, so you weren't allowed to wiggle your butt when you were out there on roller skates. But watching him do that, he just, oh, man. So he had gone off to join the Army, and I didn't know this at the time, but um, and I'm not even sure it's the same guy, but he told me he had gone AWOL from the Army the same day my mother told me she didn't want to see me. And he said, I'm driving back from, I think he was in D.C. at the time, and he said, I'm driving back to Florida, can I pick you up? And so I was like, turns out I need a place to go. (laughs) So I packed two little garbage bags full of my clothes and left with, his name was Jim Jones. Now, it wasn't until last year after Tiger King came out that there were all these armchair detectives looking into every aspect of my life. And turns out, I'm not absolutely certain it's the same person, but there was a Jim Jones who had gone not AWOL from the Army, but AWOL from Leavenworth, where he had killed somebody and was in the Army prison and had gotten he had escaped and gotten out, and then we were on the run together. I thought he was only running from the Army. I didn't know he was running from being held as a murderer, if that was him. And, you know, Jim Jones, a name like that, it's like, <laughs> that's kind of hard to trace. Yeah, there's a lot of things connected to that name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't involved in that one. <laughs> Didn't drink the Kool-Aid. But, um, you know, given what I knew about him, Mm -hmm. he would just beat the living daylights out of me. And he had a horrible temper and he was a drug addict and a drunk. And I could definitely see him killing somebody because he nearly killed me. I don't know how many times. But I felt like because I had been raised in such a sheltered home, I felt Mm. like this is the devil I know versus the devils I don't know. And so I felt safer living with him than I did being out there on the streets by myself. And when I say living with him, we were on the streets. I would sleep under cars, and um, just about every dollar that I brought in was going to his drug and alcohol habit. So that's why I was having to work so hard. And I finally got us an apartment, but our apartment was actually like somebody's garage. And I ran a garden hose through the window so that we would have a way to wash off in this little tub. And that's in West Virginia. It's freezing cold in the winter and no heated water, no heat in the, in the house or the garage, but I've gotten way off track here. Um, (laughs) anyway, I left home at the age of 15, made another stupid mistake there. And the whole time I was gone, I didn't contact my parents because I thought my mother meant she never wanted to see me again. And it wasn't until, um, Jim said that he wanted to come visit his mother who lived in Tampa we were driving through San Antonio, Florida. I was born in San Antonio, Texas, but we were driving through San Antonio, Florida, and he was drunk as could be, and I was driving, and he was like all over me, and I couldn't see what was happening, and I ran through a stop sign, and I got T-boned by this, and I was in a Toyota, tiny little Toyota, but I got T-boned by this like full-size 1970s-style, whatever that was, Buick or something. Mm. I don't think it was a Buick. But anyway, it was as big as a Buick. And 
the next thing I know, I'm seeing this scene like from Gladiator, you know, where he's walking through the field and he's got his hands on the tops of the grain as he's walking mm-hmm. through the field. And that was the last thing I remembered before waking up in a hospital bed and being told that I'd been brought in as a Jane Doe because I had no ID and that um, I had broken my neck and that I was never going to walk again. And so Jim didn't want to be held responsible or caught because he was on the run. And so he and a bunch of his friends snuck me out of the hospital and took me to his mother's house. So I stayed there, unable to do anything other than drag myself around on my elbows. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get up on my own. And my grandfather somehow found me. And to this day, I don't know how it was that he discovered where I was, but he came and got me took me to a chiropractor, and within, I'd say within six months or so, they had me back up and walking again. And so it was at that point when he took me to the chiropractor that I spoke to my family for the first time since Mm -hmm. I'd left home. And my mother was like, I didn't mean I never wanted to see you again. I just meant, you know, like, stay in your room tonight because I'm really mad. And so we've been reconciled since then, and my parents have worked in the sanctuary work with me, and my my father worked here till literally till the day he died in 2016, and my mother got remarried in 2018, and she left in 2019 to retire. But she's still down the road, and I still have lunch with her all the time. That was a really long answer for that question. No, I'm but, sorry. No, it, it it touched upon all the things I was going to ask after, like what 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 were you doing? Like wh- how did you reconcile? Like how did you get out of that abusive relationship? So. It's 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 good to hear that, you know, you started, you know, your journey and then it kind of, I want to say magically turned itself around, but it turned itself around and now you are the person who you are now. So as far as raising cats and why, why cats? There are so many animals in this world. Why cats? You said you had this inkling when you were a young little girl. Why, why cats? Why not snakes? Why not primates? Why not birds? Why not, you know, mice? Why, why cats? A couple years ago, People Magazine wanted some baby pictures of me. So I went to my mother and I said, have you got any like photo albums that I can dig through? And I pulled out this picture of like the first day that I'd been brought home from the hospital. My mother's holding me and my father's holding up our cat. And it's a little tabby striped cat and on the back I turned it over and it said the cat's name was tiger and I thought well wasn't that just written in the cards <laughs> that's serendipitous if, if anything else can be that's serendipity <laughs> but it wasn't that that made me think about saving cats in shelters that was actually my grandmother and my parents were workaholics and my grandmother was as well but she sold Amway so I could sell Amway with her mm. but um they split my mother and my grandmother split raising me so like during the day when my mother was at work I would be with my grandmother and then at night my grandmother would take me back over to my mother and so my grandmother insisted that proper girl and I was raised in such different environments because my family was poor they were hardworking. we lived in a trailer park my grandmother was even though she was raised poor picking cotton in Arkansas and married to a cop she wanted something better for her life. And she worked like nobody's business selling Amway. Um, he was selling cars later on after he was in an automobile accident. He slid a motorcycle underneath a car while he was a cop and couldn't do that anymore. But in her world, the carpets were white. The furniture was white. The 
curtains were like velour curtains. Everything that could have a gold gilded surface looked like something out of Trump Towers. I mean, it was just, that was my daytime life. And then trailer park was my nighttime life. And she insisted that a proper young lady not have a mutt for a cat. And I did. I had a gray stray (laughs) named Smokey who had a litter of kittens and she insisted that we take Smokey to the animal shelter where she was going to get a family that would be able to take care of her and all of her babies and she wanted me to have a poodle and I wanted nothing to do with a poodle but I conceded to taking the cat to the shelter and then you know I was eight years old so it was sometime shortly after that that I learned that none of these cats who go to shelters, well, not none, but the vast majority of them end up being killed. And that was when I was like, all right, I owe this to Smokey. I am not going to let this happen. And I feel bad that I've gotten so distracted with this exotic cat issue that I've wasted my, well, I haven't wasted, but I've spent my entire life on that when it's like, I still need to get over there and help those domestic cats. Mm. And so that's why I feel like I'm 60 now and I feel like, I am on this um, treadmill that for the sanctuary, I have to raise between three and a half and four million dollars a year. And I have to spend as much time as I possibly can trying to get legislators to adopt our bill and to pass this bill so that we can stop this flood of exotic cats ending up in horrible situations so that I can finally get back to what I really Mm. wanted to do before I run out of time. So I've always felt like I'm being chased by the devil, like I've got just a limited amount of time and resources to be able to do what I came here to do. So then you transitioned from Smokey to the Bobcats to now, obviously, way bigger cats. <laughs> the tigers, the lions of the world. What, what is some, because when I think of a lion, right, everybody anthropomorphizes lions from Lion King, right? And from... Uh, let's say from Madagascar and things like that. And everybody's like, oh, they're so cute and cuddly. <laughs> but what are some things about, about having a lion or a tiger in your home that you would tell somebody to lead them away from actually doing so? Almost all of the images that people see of people touching big cats or walking them on leashes or having them in their house even though the cats might look to be adults by their size, because a lion can be 200 or 300 pounds by the time it's two years old. A tiger can, you know, we've had tigers that were 750 pounds. And so when they were two year olds, they were probably 400 pounds. And 400 pounds looks really big to a person that's 150 pounds. So a lot, well, almost all of the pictures that you ever see like that, these are really just kittens who are big kittens. And that's the only reason these people have any kind of relationship with them. And if you think about what that's like for those cats in the wild, their mothers raise them for anywhere from, depending on smaller cat species, maybe 18 months to the larger cat species where it could be three or four years, maybe even five years in tigers and lions. Their mothers raise them and they treat their mothers with deference during that period of time. But when they become four or five years old, they become adults and they will kill their mother for the territory. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for people having them as pets. They might let you get away with showing off and walking them around on a leash and being stupid around them until they become who they are. And once they become who they are, that's when they kill you. Roy Horn, very famous of Siegfried and Roy, 
you know, mm-hmm. probably the best known tiger trainer ever to walk the earth and killed by his or near, nearly killed by his cat Montecore once he got to be an adult. And when people see those romantic notions, they think, I want to do that. I want to be special. I want people to think that I am a cat whisperer of some sort. Mm-hmm. And so they buy into that romantic idea without any understanding of who those cats are at their core and who they're going to be once they grow up. Yeah, I, I, I'm always afraid because I don't know, uh, you probably seen the the zoos or the sanctuary, not even sanctuary, the zoos or the the exhibits in Thailand where they have you know drug. I'm let's let's call a spade a spade. Drugged up lions and tigers, and you're able to take a picture and things like that. Instead of where I went to, like a elephant sanctuary where they're roaming free, they're able to do whatever the heck they want and stuff like that. So I. So what work are you doing to help situations not on home ground and also international? Are you doing anything in that um, aspect as well? Yeah, actually, I thought you were going to go somewhere with what you just said about Thailand that you didn't. And there's a great film out there right now called Tiger Mafia. And it talks about the how the mafia controls the poaching and selling of tigers and these tiger farms where these cats are being farmed for their teeth and their bones and their their hides. And so there was recently a showing of Tiger Mafia, which is not available to the public yet. And we asked if we could show that at Big Cat Rescue. So sometime in September, between September 23rd and 26th, we're going to be showing Tiger Mafia to anybody who's interested. But it's a real wake-up call because most people have never seen how how horrific it is and how close the tiger is to becoming extinct in the wild and what we have to do to stop that. And they would see that in this film, except for the fact that this this film is so true and it it's all undercover footage shot by Carl Amon, who is my hero. And people don't want to see that. They don't want to think about that. They don't want the ugliness of that to linger in their memories and so they won't watch it. And so the big major streamers haven't been willing to show it. And it's a huge loss for all of us because we'll lose the tiger without ever knowing how close we could have been to saving them. And so in addition to trying to promote films like that, being involved in other films like the Conservation Game film that showed how this whole problem began in America with these talk show hosts going on TV with cute little cubs and telling people that these were from the big zoos when in fact they were coming from these nasty little backyard breeders and telling people they were going to go live in that same zoo or some great sanctuary and yet they were ending up in horrible situations or just absolutely disappearing. Mm -hmm. We give over $100,000 a year of the donations to Big Cat Rescue to conservation efforts in the wild. And part of our vetting of who gets that money is that they can't be somebody who is saying one thing and doing another. And so many of these conservation organizations know that the way they get people to pay attention to them is to pose petting the cheetah, to pose petting the lion, to show that they have this special bond with the animal, which just drives people to want to have them as pets or to want to pay to pet them, which is causing all of this surplus of these animals being dumped into the both legal and illegal markets, which is what gives you the legal smokescreen for the illegal activities of poaching. So when we vet out somebody, it's going to be somebody who's not touching the freaking animals or they're not getting any money from us. 
And we mostly give to the smaller cat issues because everybody gives to lions and tigers and cheetahs. But the smaller cats, like black-footed cats and jungle cats and leopard cats and snow leopards, these guys don't get nearly as much funding. So we mm. work primarily to donate to those. So what would, if somebody was looking at a zoo and somebody was looking at your sanctuary, what would be the differences? Why, would, why should a, a tiger or a lion or a small cat be at your sanctuary instead of at a zoo? That was one of the things that surprised me about Tiger King was how the film Tiger King or the, the series was the extreme extents that they went to to try and make it look like zoos and sanctuaries were the same. And they based that on a bunch of the people who own a bunch of these nasty backyard zoos saying they're the same, which they're not, and saying that, well, because... Joe Exotic has tigers in cages, and I have tigers in cages, thus we are the same. And it's like, no, not even not, are we not the same, but no sanctuary is the same as any zoo, no legitimate sanctuary, because our entire philosophy is different. Sanctuaries do not buy, they don't breed, they don't sell, they don't allow the public to touch the animals, and they don't take the animals off-site to, like, malls or TV shows. And zoos are in the business of buying and breeding and selling and taking these animals off to do talk shows and fairs and all of that kind of stuff. And there's still a handful of them that allow people to pet the animals. And so we're like philosophically, we couldn't be at two more polar different extremes. And yet everybody who watched Tiger King thinks sanctuaries and zoos are the same because of the way because of the way that they were um, misinformed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you say that because, like, like, I always go back to the elephant sanctuary that I went to compared to a zoo. Which that, one? I went to the elephant sanctuary in Thailand. I forgot which one it was, but legitimately went there and the, you know, the elephants were just doing their own thing. They just happened to come over and it's like, hey, you know, do you want to ride me? And then even when you ride them, it's not like they have to, you have to have a connection with them before you even do anything with them. So it's like you have to feed them. Like it was almost a full day event because you have to like have a connection in their eyes and then you could get on the, the elephant. And even then I felt kind of icky about it, <laughs> but it was, they, they just walk through the water, they're eating, they do whatever they have to do and they come back because I believe it's like you're to them, it's like having a fly on their back, basically. Um, but that felt more of a situation where they're free roaming, have the ability to do their daily activities, have ability to grow and have a family and have livelihood, similar to how they would in the wild instead of a zoo where they'll be in a cage that's proportioned to their size, maybe, and three other cage, three other elephants there that they may or may not know, part of their, their pride or their family, I forgot what they're called, but I always see the differences as that in, in, in general. So I always just take my experience from there, no misinformation and kind of like, eh, zoos are cool, like for little kids and things like that. But as far as the right way to do it, I think sanctuaries are the right way to go. And there shouldn't be a need for sanctuaries. My ultimate goal is that our place can shut down because we don't have to rescue animals anymore from mm. horrible situations. And anybody who's running a legitimate sanctuary, that should be their ultimate goal too. We're only here because of all the bad stuff people are doing to animals. If we can stop that bad stuff, we don't have to be doing this. We can go do whatever we, you know, 
really want to do, which is not clean up other people's mess. So do you, um, after a certain time period, do you like to set the animals out in, back in the wild? And have, and have they been able to kind of matriculate back into the wild very safely and easily? It's impossible. Mm. There is no program and never has been for big cats who were born in captivity to be released back into the wild. The only time that it's legal anywhere in the world to release a captive born, or the only time it's legal to release a big cat into the wild is when it was born in the wild. So you may have heard um, in the past couple of years about a tiger in in, uh, Russia, a mother tiger and her two cubs. And I think the mother got killed. They brought the cubs who were, they were big. I mean, they weren't babies. They brought those two cubs into captivity, gave them enough time to become complete adults, and then they put them back out into the wild. That's legal. It didn't even work. And the reason that can't work is because in order to take care of a big cat through that period of time of kittenhood, you have to be around them somewhat. And so like in our rehab program, we only have rehab bobcats. We're going to start working with the state on Florida Panthers. But um, in the past, it's always been bobcats. So we try to wean them as, po- as fast as we possibly can. And then we have them on uh, camera monitors that watch them as soon as they're able to eat to make sure they're eating enough and defecating okay and all of that. And then we move them out into outdoor enclosures that are 5,000 square feet for each bobcat, which is a 20-pound cat. Mm-hmm. And that's like five times the size of my house. And so in there, they are taught how to hunt first, you know, little mice and then bigger mm-hmm. rats and then bigger animals. And we make sure by watching them again through all these cameras that they're able to do that before we take them out to the wild and release them. But the only even small cats that we can release are the ones who were actually born in the wild. So all these cats who came from fur farms, people's pets, all of those, it's illegal to release them to the wild. And if I mess up on a bobcat and that cat becomes a little bit too habituated to a person, it might come up to a person at a picnic table somewhere and be like, hey, got anything to eat? That's not going to probably kill anybody. But if you do that to a tiger and the tiger comes up on some kid at a bus stop, it's like, that's a pretty good looking snack right there. And once that cat kills somebody, then the entire community goes out in search of being able to kill whoever that rogue cat was. Well, they're going to kill the first cat they see, which may not even be that cat. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's not legal or ethical to release a big cat back to the wild. Gotcha. If it wasn't born in the wild. And like I said, even the ones who have been born in the wild, it hasn't succeeded. Yeah. Um, hmm, that's that's kind of sad to hear. Um, it's very sad. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me what is one good thing? And you probably have a, a lot of... Um, no, let's start with this question. Who has... What is your favorite cat? Bobcat. Okay. Second question. What is your... What is the, what is one good thing and one bad thing about um, raising um, cats, big cats? Wild cats? Yes. I think the one good thing that I have gotten from watching these cats in captivity is to see their ability to forgive us. Mm-hmm. We are holding them captive every single day of their life when they want to be free, and they will do everything they can to obtain their freedom, even though they would end up being killed if they were, or starved to death because they don't know how to hunt. 
But despite that, they're still willing to tolerate us. And I, I don't know if I were in their shoes that I would have that dignity and that, um, that ability to be forgiving. And then the hardest thing is actually the same thing. It's seeing these amazing animals in cages. A single tiger would roam 400 square miles of territory in the wild. I had a bobcat that came in that got hit by a car. She got hit twice in the same accident. And she was so smashed up. And we got her fixed back up, got her out into the rehab cages. And her first day out there that she's walking around on her little mending bones, she walked 16 miles. I watched her lap after lap after lap. And I'm thinking, 16 miles for this broken bobcat. What kind of cage could anybody ever give that cat that would be sufficient for what she needs? So that's the hardest thing. And what would you say to your younger self after all the trials and tribulations you went to when you was, let's say, 16, that girl, let's say 15, you said, young Carol at 15, what would you tell her? I think the, the best thing I could have done at the age of 15 would have been to be brave enough to be on my own. I think by choosing to be with the devil I knew, mm -hmm. I set myself back years and I continued that same pattern of attracting men into my life that were abusive, physically abusive, verbally abusive. And every one of those times that I was in a situation like that, I think it really held me back from my fullest potential. So I would have said, face it alone. Um, don't, don't let these other people hold you back. Um, and you brought it up a couple of times, but Tiger King. Um, so how did you deal with that mentally exhausting? I know it had to be mentally exhausting BS that was kind of dragging you through the mud. How did you deal with your mental stability at that time? How, what did you do? Or was there something that you did on a day-to-day -day basis? Or there, was there something that you kind of uh, remembered? What was something that helped you did to help your mental health? I think it was a lot harder for the people who know and love me than it was on me personally. Because mm -hmm. if you can imagine somebody saying something absolutely ridiculous about you that's not true, you'd be like, that's not me. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's saying that about your mother or your beloved, then there's that feeling of having to say, no, that's not who that person is. This is who that person is. And always feeling like they have to defend me or protect me from the stupid things people say and do. And so I think that was the hardest part for me was that they were having to deal with that. Um, last question I usually ask for, before we go into shots fired, and it is one of my favorite questions, is what are you doing, which I probably know, or what do you want to do to change the world? I'm so excited about the opportunity to actually save the tiger before they go extinct. And the way I think that we can do that, the technology is already here. For years, I kept thinking, I just hope the technology catches up in time. And now it's here. And what I can see is setting 360-degree cameras that are internet streaming in the areas where these big cats are known to frequent, like their den sites or where they go down to the watering hole or favorite hunting grounds. Having these cameras all over the place that are sending that signal back to anyone who's wearing a headset or has a smartphone that can see these cats doing what they do in real time 
And now we have blockchain and we have smart contracts. And so we could set up these feeds that are coming in to say 80% of the money that comes in from this feed should go back to these local economies where these people are having to live with tigers and snow leopards and jaguars who are killing their cattle and, you know, causing all kinds of havoc for them. And if they had the same kind of lifestyle and um, access to resources that all of us in America have, then they wouldn't be poaching these tigers for the meager amount they could get for their bones. They would want to protect those cats because that's an ongoing income stream for mm-hmm. everybody. And it makes everybody a game warden who wants to make sure that those cats are protected and the cameras are protected and everything else because so much of that money goes back to them. And then the other 10% of that, I think, should go to the people supplying the cameras or the zoos. I think zoos teach our children the absolute worst message we could possibly teach a child, which is it's okay to take away the freedom of this magnificent animal because you want to see it and you want to see it up close and you don't want to have to get your feet dirty and we're just going to make that easy for you and to hell with what that animal feels about this. What kind of message have we been teaching our children for the past 200 years when we take them to a zoo to watch some animal languishing in a cage? So I think zoos should become and will become because people are changing. Kids are smarter now than they ever were before Mm -hmm. by IQ tests. And so they're going to turn into these location-based facilities for people who can't afford a headset. You go in there, you go into the the Himalayan room and they're blowing cold air on you and you put the headset on and you're smelling curry that the monks are cooking in the tent next door. And here goes a snow leopard in real time walking past you with her cubs. And you're seeing that cat in the wild in real time doing what they feel or what they do. And you're feeling the entire experience. So you're living it. You're, you're going to remember that so much better than reading about a snow leopard in a book. So I think that that's the future. And I'm really, really excited about the prospects of that. I love that. It it takes. I went to Legoland. Is this is not the same thing? But but I went to Legoland and they had this 4D experience. And like you were saying, when you went on the ride, you get the water sprayed on you, and you could hear like things coming under you, like it's rumbling and things like that. So I I love that idea. That's such a great idea. It's like an immersive experience. Yeah, I, I love it without having to go to these different countries and not having to book these thousand dollar tickets. So. I love, 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 love that idea so much. And think about how that actually joins all of us together. I mean, the reason we have wars is we're fighting for resources. What if we're all sharing all of the resources that we have in an equitable way like that, that protects the planet for all of us? I mean, I can't imagine anything better. And then it's it's the greatest thing about the internet and the worst thing about the internet is that it brings us all together. So that's kind of exactly what you're doing instead of, like a human to human contact now it's a human to animal contact so you can actually understand like hey this animal actually has a family this animal actually you know at 7 p.m it takes naps you know it wakes up it it goes you know and plays with its kids it goes to quote unquote work trying to go and get an animal hide or something like that so you can see the entire lifespan of something and i think that will add value to like we said our future children because they will understand this is not Tony the Tiger. This thing actually has a livelihood within itself. So I love, 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 love that so much. <laughs> so much. Um, so we're going to head into a section I like to call Shots Fired. 
which is elevated icebreakers. It's about 15 or 20 questions. And the first thing that comes to your head is going to let it fly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. And this is. I suck at this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you, you haven't finished yet. You can't say you suck at it yet. <laughs> I've seen other versions of it. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know. <laughs> This is shots. What's your favorite color? Purple. What's your favorite sport? I hate sports. Okay. What's your favorite cereal? Cheerios. What's your favorite movie? Memento. Ooh. What's your favorite TV show? <sighs> I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, I've watched something recently called The Movies That Made Us that really made me laugh. That's a good one. Um, and what movie do you hate to love? Like a guilty pleasure movie? Dirty Dancing. Mm. Um, who's your favorite artist? And it doesn't have to be a musical artist. I always preface this by saying that and the art has to be anything that makes you feel or gives you an emotion. So it could be a dancer, it could be a singer, it could be a painter, it could be anybody like that. Gustav Klimt. Okay. Um, What's one place you want to visit that you haven't yet? Peru. If you had a time machine, would you go back in the, in the, would you go back in time or into the future? Ooh, that's hard. You know, you could go back in time and change things. You could go into the future and see what needs to be changed. Um, I think I would go into the future. Okay. Um, as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? A veterinarian. Who is your celebrity crush? Celebrity crush. Um, I would have to say, I, now I can't even think of his name. Capiro? What's his first name? He was in... The reason I love this guy is because he donates so much of his time and energy to wildlife issues. DiCaprio. Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's my favorite actor. One of my favorite actors of all time. Um, who would you change places with for one day? Living or dead? Living or dead. Albert Einstein. Okay. I want to be in that guy's head for just five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> that would be interesting, to say the least. Um, what would be the name of your autobiography? My husband says he's already written his autobiography, and it's called I Married Catwoman. <laughs> not, not a bad title at all. <laughs> uh, cage fight. Okay. I like that. Um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? I think I have a superpower in that I can see the future. To a certain extent. And so I would like to perfect that. Mm. Okay. If you had the opportunity to sit around a dining table full of three people that you enjoy, who would those three people be? My husband, my daughter, and my mother. Why? These are people who have really supported everything that I've done. Um, you know, my daughter has worked by my side since she was 12 years old. 
taking care of these cats. She's the president of Big Cat Rescue. My mother came to work for me in 1996, and she worked for me until um, 2018 or 2019, 2019, I think. And my husband, I met him 20 years ago, and he has worked right alongside me ever since then to try and get this federal bill passed. That's, that's very nice, very sweet. I love it. Um, if you had to be handcuffed to somebody for a month, who would it be? Uh, that would definitely be my husband. <laughs> I think we could get along better than we've never had a fight in 20 years together. We've really? never had our first fight. We've come kind of close a few right. times. You can imagine right. the stress involved. We have to stop. We have to stop this conversation. How do you not have a fight in 20 years of marriage? Please. This is my precious husband, Howard Baskin. He has his own <laughs> bobblehead doll. Um, actually, it was because of him. He was so smart. When we got together, and we first started talking about marriage. He said, what we need is a constitution because it's easy. And he's a Harvard MBA. He's 11 years my senior. Um, really, really smart guy. Smartest guy I know. And he said, when things are good, people get along great. But when things are bad, that's when you have trouble. So we need to write a constitution right now for when things are hard, how we will deal with each other. And the there were a number of things. There was probably 15 points in this constitution. But the underlying essence of it is that when people have a fight about leaving your socks on the floor, it becomes like this, this marriage challenging thing because now you're talking about every time they left the cabinet door open, every time they left the toilet seat up, every time that they forgot to take the dog out. Every, and so it, you, the idea is if you never have, if you never do anything to the other person that causes you to have to ask for forgiveness, even for that little thing, then you're never going to have all of these things pile up into something big later. And so we have taken the position of if there's something that the other person is doing that irritates us, to let them know in a way that isn't accusatory or challenging, just to say, you know, when you leave the doors open in the house, I'm afraid that our house has been shook by an earthquake, and I'd really like to, you know, trying to make some humor out of it or something to uh, let the other person know that this is a pet peeve. And so... We've managed to do that to where we've never had to say, I'm sorry for the way we've treated each other, looked at each other, uh, you know, sniffed and walked away or anything like that, because we're just so cognizant of never wanting to have that be the first fight. And then after about the first 15 years, you're like, oh, heck, I do not want to break this, <laughs> this amazing string that we're on. So I think you try even harder, which is not how marriages usually work. Wow, that is gold right there i want to package that up and just selling it across the world that is hyper uh, oh man isn't he smart he's so that, smart that, that's that's monumental that's that's worth like a hundred years of therapy all that stuff that takes away <laughs> so much infighting within a relationship if you basically always always use communication to tell how you feel like about a situation and once that person connects that situation to you feeling bad if they're the one for you or if they love you they're like hey i don't want to make that person feel bad so they stop that action it's <laughs> mind-blowing mind-blowing um i am fianced and we are getting married in march so that is something i need to implement immediately <laughs> 
put it in writing. That was a big part of it. Yeah. You know, you really commit to things that you put in writing and haul it out as you need to. And the other thing is to recognize your partner's um, moods. So, mm-hmm. like, if there is something where I feel like, you know, we need to talk about this, to say, I can see that you're having a tough time right now. There's something I want to talk about with you. And can we set up time like three days from now, three years from now, whatever it is, until we think that person's going to be in the frame of mind to talk about it. And by then, you've usually even forgotten what that issue was. Yeah. I don't know if you have this constitution out, but you need to like send this out to people. This That would be so useful in like just document because like you're, you're right, writing things down even for mental space, if you write things down, you usually do it quicker and it's usually on top of your mind more. So to have that information, that that would, I already have some, that's on my to-do list today, uh, to say the least. So my last question always is, what is your death row meal? Last meal of life. Um, oh no. Okay, don't look at that. Um, what is your last meal of life? Death row meal. Um, I need an appetizer a entree, dessert, and what are you drinking? Wow. Um, So I'm 42 years sober. Um, I might really just have a great drink at the end of that. My my drink of choice back then was rum and Coke, so maybe a rum and Coke. And the appetizer would be cherries, and the dessert would be ice cream. And for the meal, I'm a vegetarian, so it's like, you know, it's hard for a vegetable to really get me excited. Um, <laughs> if I was going to have vegetables for my final meal, what would that be? You know, there's, uh, I eat these Vistro vegan meals that they prepare for you and send to you like a week's worth or two weeks' worth mm. at a time. Mm-hmm. And their veggie empanadas are the best, so it would be veggie empanadas. Nice. Um, what, what's for dessert? Ice cream. Ice cream, nice. Is it going to be vegan ice cream or regular ice cream? What flavor? Uh, vegan and chocolate. Ooh, nice. Um, I made some zucchini empanadas the other day, and um, wow, delicious. Yes, yes, yes. You cook? Oh yeah, I cook. I like I, my fiance would say that I cook better than her sometimes. And she's a she's a southern cook, so she she'll. <laughs> Like Sunday dinners are her thing, like mac and cheese, all, um, ch- a whole chicken or turkey, and we, it's only us and the baby, so we always have leftovers, so we usually give it out to family members and stuff like that, but if it's something new or something that I found online or something like that, I usually can take a first crack at it and knock it out the park, so yeah. I'm impressed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> if anybody hears this, Chopped, call me. Uh, <laughs> if you hear this down my voice chop call me food network um no but um please carol thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me it was such an enlightening conversation that last that that marriage thing is going to help me for the rest of my life so that that's it's weight and gold as it is but um thanks for taking the time out thanks for um giving me um the opportunity to speak with you and get a lot of information about um, wildlife rescue, definitely big cat rescue. Can you please tell everybody where they can find you and anything upcoming coming out? So if they go to bigcatrescue.org, that's our website, and you can join us on all of the social channels as Big Cat Rescue. There's over 200 people in our social chat rooms on Facebook and Instagram and all of that. That They're all volunteers, and they're there just to answer any questions you have about big cats. 
We're on Clubhouse every night, every Saturday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the Big Cats room. And so there's just so many ways that you can get involved in saving big cats. But the biggest thing that your U.S. audience can do is go to bigcatact.com, and we make it so easy. You just type in your name and address, and it knows who your member of Congress is. It'll perform a tweet to them. It'll create an email for you to send them. And if you're really brave, you can actually let it dial them for you, and it gives you a little script to say, which is just, please ask your boss to co-sponsor the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And then it'll dial your next senator and then your representative. So three people in a row, it'll dial and let you say that. And if you're afraid to talk to your member of Congress, do it on the weekends. Do it on the holiday weekend. Do it at night. They're not there. You're just going to talk to an answering machine. So it's not so scary, and it's the best thing you can do to end the cub petting and to phase out private ownership of big cats. Thank you so much. Um, the last thing Thank we you, do, Drew. The last thing we do here on Drew versus the World is say our catchphrase. And the catchphrase is pretty simple. All this is love, peace, and chicken grease. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say love, peace, and vegan chicken grease? <laughs> Ooh, here we go. That's a little spin on it. So all you have to say is, um, I'm Carol Baskins, and I'm a Drew of the World. Um, love, peace, and vegan chicken grease. <laughs> I'm Carol Baskin here with Drew versus the world, and it's love, peace, and vegan chicken grease. Yeah, there we go. And this has been another episode of Drew versus the world.